0: The European Copyright Directive that passed in March 2019 didn't make massive waves in the US, but the ripple effects of closing the safe harbor loophole in one territory may end up producing significant changes for the global music industry in the coming years. Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, I talked to several people about how the decision was made and what implications it has for all of us. It's all coming up on The Future of What. What? Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Helen Smith of Impala. Helen, welcome to the Future of What. Oh, thank you for having me. So nice to talk to you. So we have a lot to discuss in that something momentous happened in Europe <laughs> recently. So the European Copyright Initiative was upheld, was passed and that includes the controversial Article 13. Do you want to tell us what this means for the music industry moving forward?
1: Yeah, sure. It's really part of a reform for the whole of copyright, so it includes other things like you write for newspaper publishers, that was also quite infamous in the debate about the reform that was known as Article 11. And Article 13 is about addressing the value gap, which basically means that platforms which operate on the basis of user uploads, then they also have to get into copyright negotiations in the same way as other services like Spotify, Deezer, for example. Right, which of
0: course has uh, major implications for YouTube. Yeah, sure. And. What we're interested in, I mean, obviously this'll be great for Europe, we hope, but we're also hoping that it would change YouTube's practices worldwide. What do you think the likelihood of that is?
1: I think it's pretty likely because mainly for an efficiency reason services will tend to operate the same system. Right. So you know, it's easier for them to have one single way of operating that means that they could license everything on more or less the same terms. And also, you know, if they have new rights to comply with, it makes it easier if they operate under one set of rules, and they can roll that out from from Europe or from the USA, from wherever their center is. But they will tend to, I think, raise the level for all countries.
0: Does the new ruling have any kind of penalty attached, for example, if, let's just say, YouTube does not comply?
1: Well, there's no specific penalty like that says, like, for example, you know, you know that Google's just been fined again by the European Commission for messing around on on search. There's no specific remedy like that in place, it would be down to individual countries to decide what the remedies are for non-compliance. Apart from that, there would be the typical remedies for not respecting copyright. So damages in court, being told to get a license, having to pay for lost license revenues, etc.
0: So in other words, this will be frightening to them because it's going to open them up for more litigation?
1: Yeah, potentially. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. And also because they're now in a different negotiation because before it was possible for YouTube to try and argue that these music is is being uploaded. I have nothing to do with it. I'm just, you know, being neutral. And the courts have already said in Europe for a long time, that's not the case you know the platforms are providing a music service they're acting like a music distributor therefore they need a license and the negotiations need to be conducted in a copyright framework and up to now that's not really been possible because the user upload platforms tend to say all I'm really obliged to do is take stuff down if you don't like what I'm offering then I you know I've got this great takedown system why don't you use that
0: <laughs> yeah it's great. <laughs> We love it. But now it's going to be a situation where they actually are being told that they do have something to do with the upload, or they're somewhat responsible.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So they are liable for music uh, where it's notified to them.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I mean, it could be fantastic. I'm fingers crossed for the whole world (laughs) moving forward.
1: Yes, and I I, I think a lot of jurisdictions are looking at this question of safe harbours for a number of different reasons. Like in Europe, other jurisdictions are concerned about the lack of responsibility, the need to to have a look at the rules of engagement online and, you know, the decisions that are taken about who owns what data. There are many, many, many layers of, of of issues that have been discussed in Europe and elsewhere. They're all, and copyright's just one of them. And it's really all about how we rewrite the rules of engagement online so that we have a fair and and sustainable online environment that everyone can benefit from.
0: Absolutely. So your organization is called Impala. So do you want to explain what Impala does?
1: Yes, so we are a trade association that brings together national associations like A2IM and also independent labels who are direct members. So we would have like A2IM, and a sisters all across Europe, plus companies that are members of the board of, of a 2 who want to join direct.
0: And then what do you guys, do you guys actually do the lobbying?
1: Yes, we do it ourselves. Right. You know, that typically that, that involves members on a daily basis as well, because everything is done by member state in Europe. So you need to be able to speak Spanish to Spanish parliamentarians and, and, you know, they need to hear from their local constituents about why it's important that they do something about copyright in the online world. And therefore, it's a work of highly collective nature that's done by Impala in the office in Brussels, but also with the national associations across Europe.
0: Absolutely. Are the people who work in your office multilingual or do you have people from every territory?
1: The members do that That work in, in local languages.
0: Oh, wow, that's great.
1: Yeah, I mean, we do speak maybe three languages in the office, but you can't <laughs> cover them all. So you also need to have local contact. So it's basically like a multi-layered network that operates and is, and is highly effective. And it's the same in, in other sectors. So one of the reasons why the, the copyright debate I think it ended up going the way it did, which was in the direction of creators was because we worked very effectively with other sectors that we had never worked for before, like newspaper publishers, obviously books, photography. They were all affected by so-called article 13. And, you know, it was really great I think, for decision makers to see that everybody was pulling together and, and coming up with one line of arguments, which made it very compelling.
0: That's so interesting because, of course, in the United States we had a similar thing with the MMA where everyone in the industry pulled together, sort of set aside their differences and tried to get this thing passed, which then did pass. Yeah, sure. So just showing the positive nature of cooperation, right, amongst people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily cooperate.
1: Yeah, sure. And it was very important in this directive as well that we also had specific provisions in there for performers and authors, so remuneration as regards their contracts, with labels and publishers. So there are specific revisions, there are specific rules in there that apply to authors and performers. And and that was very important because decision makers could see that they were actually introducing reform for the benefit of individual creators as well as their partners like labels and publishers. So that was a crucial part of the package.
0: Are there any organizations in the various territories that are very powerful f- that represent the artists, that represent performers?
1: Yes, so you have like the International Artists Organization, IAO. They represent featured artists and they, they also have national associations in, in different countries. So Featured Artists Coalition in the UK, which is, is quite well known in, in Europe. They represent the featured artists sector in the UK and, and they're linked up across Europe. So we had a very good relationship with them throughout. And then you also have authors. Organizations, the European Composers and the Songwriter Alliance, and other organizations as well, where where we you know we work together, independent publishers, independent music companies, and, and you know, similar arrangements in other sectors as well.
0: Are there musicians' unions in Europe?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And did they come through on this as well?
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Everybody worked together on on this.
0: Fascinating. Wow.
1: Is there anything else that you think that we should
0: know about the passage of this? Is it now a law? I mean,
1: yeah. It, it, now it's just waiting for reapproval by member states. So it's already been approved by member states before it went to parliament, and now it is waiting for the final approval. So that will be in the next couple of weeks, and then it has to be adopted at national level by every single member state. So some will be faster than others. I think France intends to to adopt it over the summer, even. Wow. And then others will take a little bit longer. I think what was interesting. Um, I don't know how it was perceived from you know outside of Europe, but what was interesting for us was the whole public debate around this piece of legislation and what was understood or misunderstood about what it would do. So there was a huge debate and an outcry here that, that this piece of legislation would be the end of memes and that individuals would not be able to post anything anymore. It would be the end of internet. It was... The censorship machine, etc. So there was a lot of very high octane stress about what the legislation would mean. And of course, it's very important for us that, that we take those concerns and, and we try and address them and, and underline what the legislation does, which is actually reinforce the position around the use of music for for caricature, parody, pastiche, criticism, review, all those Normal uses that are authorised under copyright, they're all reinforced by this new directive. So they will become mandatory in every single country. So, And licences that labels or Merlin or, or whoever grants to platforms will automatically cover a user's upload. So in many ways, consumers and, and citizens and music fans are, are better off. Wow they will be better off once it's implemented. And this particular directive is really about a regime for big platforms. So for platforms that are making large quantities of copyright content available. So it doesn't include the specific exceptions for, for example, eBay, for Wikipedia, for non-profit making services, for code sharing services, a whole list of exceptions. So a lot of the debate about non-profit making or small sites being affected by it. They're not really borne out by the legislation, which was very carefully crafted over nearly three years to make sure that the downside or the potential downside of of casting a net too wide was uh, taken into account. And and it's very important to remember that when we think about the potential impact of the legislation beyond what people felt was the right approach. So it's really well-drafted. And there are loads of exclusions in there to, to make sure that it really affects those platforms that are having the biggest impact.
0: Well, I am excited about that and I can't wait to see what's going to happen in the world as a result of this legislation. Mm.
1: <laughs> Do you have much in the state where YouTube was advertising subscribers and trying to get them to react and raise concerns etc about the directive i don't know if that happened much in the states
0: i don't think they were targeting u.s people but we did see a lot from europe we saw a lot of the reports about what i would call dirty tricks and rhetoric that were being yeah, pushed yeah, yeah. by google to try to oppose article 13 so it is really exciting to feel like the good guys managed to win this one and it's going to have a, a big effect on all of us which is nice
1: Good, yes. Well let's hope so. You do know that all the articles are renumbered. <laughs> okay. So that Article thirteen will probably always be known as Article thirteen, but then the legislation now has a now has a different number as Article seventeen.
0: <laughs> well, that's good, it confuses people that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's uh, keep people on your toes. So, I know it's normal with legislation, but it's very funny that the whole debate has been about Article thirteen.
0: <laughs> and now it's and not. now it's a different number. That's funny. Well, Helen Smith of Impala, thank you so much for being with me today on the future of what?
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: only lovers are broken by filthy friends. I get a ton of songs in my inbox every day, but managing them is a hassle. Disco makes managing and showcasing your music a breeze. It's like all the best bits of iTunes, SoundCloud, Dropbox, and MailChimp in one place. Whether you're an artist, manager, producer, sync rep, label, or music supervisor, Disco lets you manage and share your most valuable asset, your music. Head over to disco.ac backslash future for a free trial. Plans start at just $10 a month. And when you're ready to go, use offer code future for 20% off. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Crispin Hunt of the Ivers Academy. Crispin, welcome to The Future of What?
2: Hi, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Yes, we're very excited to have you. So, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm just so thrilled. The passage of the European Copyright Directive is something that you have written about extensively. And so, so happy to have you on the show to share your perspective about why this is so important for all of us.
2: I'm very pleased that it went through, obviously, because it's a fundamental change and a a fundamental shift in in legislation on behalf of creators and I'm also extremely thankful to all the support that we got in Europe from you know our, our fellow creators in America who were fantastically supportive of us and tweeted and followed everything that we did because the battlefield was very much on Twitter for whatever reason and as you know I mean the whole the, the copyright directive became a much bigger battle than just about copyright because copyright itself can be seen as quite a dry subject it shouldn't be it should be every creator's right to trade in their creativity, but it got turned into something far bigger than that. In uh, Copyright appeared to become a kind of beard for a much bigger question. The battlefield was over copyright and the forum in which the battle was fought was copyright, but it was much more about the beginning of some kind of democratic order for the internet. And I've always suspected as well that copyright's link to privacy had a role to play in it. I I think the copyright battle was so fought or fought against so furiously by technology companies, not because they, they actually see copyright as something that they ideologically don't believe in, but that I think that copyright is being intellectual property in a sense, privacy is also intellectual property and that it's all information that belongs to its creator. So I think the battle for privacy was fought over copyright. And so in Europe, it became an enormous issue. I mean, I think it's fairly well documented in the States, but there was a, a real attempt to subvert European democratic process across the three different parliamentary votes that had to take place before this Bill became a directive, and we've still got a fair way to go. Each national country, so the 27 nations, has to write it in their own way into their own national policy. But the directive is a huge achievement, and it should now change the internet so that the people who are driving the business of an awful lot of the internet the people who create the content, the people who make films, poets, playwrights, photographers start to see some of the return for the popularity of their work, um, which I think is a brighter future. And in a way, it makes the internet keep its once beautiful promise of opportunity for all and egalitarian hope for all that we can all have a much better and fairer and more global Dissemination of our work, and that we can see the rewards for that. But up until now, we haven't been seeing any of the rewards because I think all of the rewards had been turned into misappropriated into advertising revenue, and the people who are creating the value weren't extracting any of the value. So I think hopefully this will set a new tone for the way forward and a tone for a much fairer, much closer to the to the concept of what of what the internet originally was. But Putting some kind of sense
0: back into it. Well, I agree with you, but I have to say I was shocked that this actually passed in the European Parliament for the simple reason that I feel like everywhere we look today—I mean, especially coming from the United States—you know—we're just sort of overwhelmed by—I I don't know—you know, we we have sort of allowed ourselves as a populace to be lulled into giving a lot up for very little, for some sort of sense of comfort. I mean, I'm not sure what it is. You know, people across the globe are giving major corporations all of their private information for free just so that they can talk to people that they once went to high school with or something. I mean, there seems to be so little return, and yet it seems so inexorable. I mean, we, you know, from a philosophical perspective, it's been really hard to not see how the multinational corporations are just going to win the day in the end, and yet this
2: happened. I agree. I don't think that's what it was about. I mean, in a sense, from being crass, I think America has a very different view of creativity and of innovation, and innovation has always driven the states. but the states has got a much more you know the magic of the free market will sort everything out philosophy than Europe. has. Europe is fundamentally, especially the the French are, are fundamentally much more socialist and much more interactive with the market than that. And they believe that there should be a flourishing market, but that it should be for the benefit of society rather than for the benefit of the market. And I think that played out. If I'm being crass, I think the French and the Germans have never really liked being bossed about by anybody else. And being bossed about by people from California and one particular region from California <laughs> who were kind of, I mean, I was with to MEPs today the and they were saying, oh, you're someone who we went through all of this hell for because it has been hell that this was a conservative um, party MEP. And he, and I said, yeah, and I'm extremely grateful you did exactly the right thing. They got the idea, I think, very early on that this was a real effort to, assert a kind of dominance of the internet over democracy. And that was where the battle fell. And I think, in a sense, technology lost the copyright review rather than creators winning it. Right? There were three different parliamentary votes. The first vote, we lost completely because there was this message of free speech. And I think free speech has been used as a kind of strange tool of empire. It's been used... In order to to prove that might makes right, and I think I think that created a kind of axiom that the internet was supposed to solve, but in fact the internet has kind of reasserted that idea of might makes right. And I think this is something that the Europeans, because they have had a long history of mighty people trying to assert themselves over Europe, have an automatic reaction to that, and their reaction was very negative to that kind of influence I think that know the first vote was lost we you know the creators lost the first vote and that was a, that was a disaster but that was mainly because after three years of trying to get this bill in front of the European Parliament of an enormous amount of lobbying the whole freedom of speech censorship and um, the internet should be a, a free place became the message and that message worked the first time. But then we as, as the creators, the songwriters and the artists began to speak up. We realized and we knew and we had conferences amongst ourselves with, uh, realizing that if this was going to be a battle between Hollywood and Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is, is likely to win because Silicon Valley pertains to be progress. I think we always need to question progress. I'm not a Luddite, but I do think that there is a there was a great quote by a man called Lex Stanislav who said, Is it progress if a cannibal eats with a fork? <laughs> and I think we and I think we I think we need to we need to question that about the progress that is being forced on us because I think we're giving an enormous amount up for it. But the creators stepped up to the mark and we started to take control of the conversation and we started to petition very heavily against the, you know, you will destroy the internet. There will nobody will be able to sell gifts. There was a great deal of misinformation, and the second vote before the second vote, I think it was David Lowry who uncovered the fact that there were, you know, the MEPs were getting four thousand emails a day into their email box, and this actually frustrated them. It had a negative effect they realized that this was a largely automated campaign and there was some indication that an awful lot of those emails were coming from outside of Europe. An awful lot of them apparently were coming from places like Washington, D.C., which didn't, didn't play very well with the MEPs for obvious reasons. And so frustrated and infuriated by this attempt to subvert European democracy, the MEPs then voted through the second vote with a a majority of 350. After that, the internet, YouTube especially, changed its tactic. And Susan Wojcicki and Leo Cohen came out pushing their own narrative about unintended consequences. I mean, I would always argue that Google is, in fact, an unintended consequence of what Tim Berners-Lee's beautiful gift was to us. (laughs) And he seems to argue that it's an unintended consequence, too. So, and I think that narrative worked. And then YouTube started to promote to, they targeted and tried to weaponize their own captive audience, which was very scary. Seeing a corporation of that size exert such an influence on the political process. And they started putting up anti-Article 13, vote against this. It will stop memes. It will stop gifs. It's impossible not to feel that that was incredibly disingenuous, that kind of messaging, because means and gifts were specifically excluded from the entire directive, and we'd come to a huge compromise. European politics is all about compromise, and we'd understood that it was necessary to remove means and gifts, because means and gifts were beginning to be the linchpin of the anti-copyright directive. So we, we conceded memes and gifts, even though an awful lot of memes and gifts should be licensed because they use bits of films and bits of music. And and it's wonderful that the fans of those films and music want to share that stuff. But surely the makers of the films and the music should see some reward from the popularity of their work. That's how a normal market works. So it became an incredibly difficult battle with YouTube openly you know, they took the gloves off, and um, Susan Wojcicki was openly fighting against this, and and it turned out, you know, YouTube creators who were posting anti-article 13 videos and turned out that they'd been paid up to 3,000 euros each to do this and have been contacted by youtube saying we will give you money if you argue against this law and that was an incredible manipulation of european children my own son i've got a 14 year old son and he came in going dad is this the thing that you're that you're fighting for and they tell me it's going to break the internet. But everyone tells me it's going to stop us being able to send memes and gifts. And I had to sit him down and explain to him that this was pure propaganda. And it really was pure propaganda because Susan Majinsky and YouTube knew full well that means and gifts were completely excluded deliberately from the entire directive. So it became yet again another exercise from a la Cambridge Analytica. In the same sense, in the same breath that these companies are saying, we are going to do everything that we can to stop this kind of behavior on, on our platforms. They were using and weaponizing exactly the same tools against European democracy. And I think that worked not in their favor at all. I think, I think, in fact, that spurred and strengthened European politicians to reassert democracy sovereignty over the top of these enormous monopolies. That they've become. I know there's a lot of talk about antitrust measures against the tech giants in the States. And and I think this is the next step. I think we have to break these companies up because I think just as in the past, we had the Vanderbilts, we had the East India Company, we had the railways, we had ATC, the American Tobacco Company, and they've all eventually been broken to pieces and the thing that stopped those those companies from completely controlling the market was the scrutiny of the independent press. But of course now the dangerous thing with Google especially is that Google controls the narrative. They the independent press are beholden to Google for their dissemination of their work. And so controlling the narrative, of course, they would be less inclined to display a narrative that was Critical of their direction. I don't know, I'm not making an allegation that search results were manipulated, but it certainly appeared that way when we were looking at the results about Article 13. There was an article that I published very early on, which seemed to get an enormous amount of views, and for a while was kind of number one if you search for Article 13 on Google, and then mysteriously it got pushed into news, and despite the fact that it had an enormous amount of views, apparently more views than the other stories that were being promoted, the anti-Article 13 stories appeared to get promoted. One can't prove anything, but that looked extremely like there was manipulation of the messaging going forward, which is not what we need.
0: No, and that seems very much par for the course, and certainly what we're seeing over here as well. Well, I don't want to keep you any longer. That was excellent, and thank you so much for your time. Crispin Hunt is a singer, songwriter, and producer, and also chair of the board of the Ivers Academy. Thanks for being with us on The Future
2: of What. Thank you very much. Take care.
0: That was Break Me by Filthy Friends. You're listening to the future of what? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to attorney Chris Castle. Chris, welcome back to The Future of What.
3: Thank you, Portia.
0: This is like your third time. (laughs) You're a a vet. It is. Yeah, it
3: is. (laughs) It's fantastic. I'm going to be looking for stocks.
0: uh, Yeah, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) So what I wanted to talk to you about today is this passage of the European Copyright Directive. And we've spoken to a couple of people who've given us a nice rundown. We spoke to Helen Smith of Impala, you know, obviously at the center of things. Okay. And Crispin Hunt, you know. So we got the European perspective from the people who were right there at the table. What I'm interested in from you is how you think this is going to affect the music industry in the U.S., Mm -hmm. and sort of what you think the timeline is.
3: Let's take the second part first. The process that they go through in Europe is they'll pass something at the European level, and then that's a directive, hence the name, to the member states, currently today 28, possibly tomorrow 27, who are then tests with putting together national legislation, because the European Parliament typically does not have the ability to enforce laws directly against individual Europeans, so that requires the national government. So this is now going to go on for the next couple of years, right? They have two years to pass national legislation implementing the directive. So essentially nothing will happen probably for a couple of years. The other thing that you can rest assured about is that Google will simply not comply with the law until all of that national legislation is completed, and they will do everything humanly possible to disrupt those national laws and get down in the nuances of those national laws and fight one of the biggest lobbying fights, probably, of their existence to try to prevent the implementation of the Copyright Directive. So on a technical level, that's what's probably going to happen over the next couple of years. There's going to be fight after fight after fight after fight in each parliament of the European community. For us over here, the most interesting part of this, in a way, is this is the first time that Google has lost in the copyright world on a safe harbor. And there's no doubt about it, got a better deal than they would have gotten if they hadn't done any work, but they didn't get anything like what they wanted. And the old tricks that they've used since SOPA and before that with the in Canada and, and other countries where they've used these sort of mass fake petitions and fake lobbying techniques finally came home to roost and they got caught. And the members of the European Parliament, a lot of members of the European Parliament, just rejected those tactics out of hand. So, in a way, what it's done for us indirectly in America is it's made it easier for us to revisit our own safe harbor rules in the DMCA, which is currently under review by the U.S. Copyright Office, and, you know, perhaps take some inspiration from Europe or maybe even push further than Europe with the understanding that we will get a tremendous, tremendous pushback from Google and Facebook. I usually just say Google, but it's actually Google and Facebook for the most part working together. Of course, given what we've learned from both the British Parliament's investigation into Facebook over Brexit and what we've learned from the Mueller report here about Facebook in the uh, U.S. elections in 2016 is uh, this is not a good time for them to be throwing themselves on the tender mercies of the American public, you know, <laughs> I think that...
0: <laughs> to say the least, yes. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Not, not a great look for them. And what's truly bizarre about the European Copyright Directive is that many of the same techniques that the Internet Research Agency used on Facebook ag- against in America, basically, you know, because it was really against both candidates in its own weird way. Those same techniques were used by Google and Facebook in Europe to fight the copyright directive. So we live in curious times for sure. And uh, I think that we'll see what the repercussions of that are in Europe, because there are some members who have just about had it with, you know, getting millions of spam emails and you know, all the social media fakery and, and really an extraordinary display of tone deafness on the part of Google, which got them pretty much nowhere. May end up getting them criminally investigated at the end of the day.
0: Chris, what do you think? I mean, I feel like at this point, I just can't even, as they say, with the U.S. government. So, I mean, I'm fascinated to think, I loved hearing from Crispin and now from you that there were MPs in Europe or MEPs who were just like nope not interested 4000 spam emails a day is is actually going to cause me to go in the other direction. Right. I mean, I do you feel like legislators in America would even care at this point if they got a zillion spam emails from Google? I just can't. I feel like what are people in America doing? <laughs> like is Congress doing anything? <laughs> like what would it matter? Well,
3: <laughs> Well, what happened as a result of the European Parliament experience is that many of those, you know, because the European Parliament overlapped in an, in individual member states with members of Parliament for that national government, right? What you were finding was that there were people who were talking to each other and realizing that these same techniques were being used on them and And they needed to take that into account with any investigations they were doing into these big companies. And in America, you know, I think that that has, to a certain extent, jumped the pond, right? I mean, people are more and more aware, and I think legislators are more and more inclined to believe that these techniques are being used against them. Of course, it's a bit different in the U.S. Congress because Google, for example, they don't necessarily do the exact same things here like they have this team of technical support people for members of congress who are using youtube for example for their constituent communications right so these technical support people are almost always very attractive young men and women who go around to these offices you know chit-chatting about marketing and you know the various kind of youtubery as i would say that people engage in and then they'll send around the geeks you know to actually do the real technical work. So they're not technical support at all. They're lobbyists. Wow. Right? You know, I mean, and so this is the way they get away with it, you know, is that they, they masquerade these people as performing different functions. And they've, you know, they've got a really strong foothold in the American government. On the other hand, you know, you saw SESTA and FOSTA, right, which were the uh, human trafficking bills that did pass the Congress in the last session that Google really, really fought on their other safe harbor under the Communications Decency Act, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So I think that there is a sense with some of the members that you know the bloom is off the rose with these guys, and they're prepared to lean on them hard. I mean, when you look at the field of Democratic candidates, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who would saying, no, let's not regulate the internet. You know, let's not regulate Google. I mean, I think they all have, you know, particularly Facebook has taken the rap because of the Mueller report now, most recently. I think that there's a lack of patience with these guys. And there's a, there's a knowledge that there's something fishy going on, right? So candidates don't really need any more scandal than they already managed to get themselves into, all well, by themselves, you know, as a general rule. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, you in, in Oregon, I mean, you're gifted with, you know, the fabulous Ron Wyden, right? I don't know if you remember this or not, but you've probably seen the the video of the tobacco company executives standing in front of a congressional committee going right down the line answering the question, is nicotine addictive? And all of them saying No. Right, mm. under oath, right, well, the guy who was asking the question that day was Ron Wyden, so what I would like to see from Mr. Wyden is I would like to see him take all of the heads of the of these internet companies and ask them if they create their product to be addictive. Hmm. Do they think that their product is addictive? because it is,
4: yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know,
3: you know Sean uh, Parker and you know various other facebook folks have said publicly you know that they engineered it that way and i don't think it should come as any surprise and this is one of the things that you saw also in europe right where you you have wikipedia for example going dark right so what do we call it when there's a product that someone else is dependent upon and then the person who makes the product decides to withhold it from the person who uses it with the idea that that person wants to use it so badly that they can cause them to exhibit certain behaviors and act in a certain way that benefits the owner of the product. What do we call such people?
0: Uh, Blackmailers.
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, or pimps. Pimps. Yeah, we call them pimps very often too, right? Mm -hmm. Or, Or drug dealers, right? You know, it's like just cut them off. So these guys all know these things, and there's a lot of different ways that this could all come to pass in the United States. But I do think that Google is starting on the back foot and unlike really any time in the past. And this, this copyright directive thing is not over. You know, I think there are some people that are going to investigate exactly what happened with this, mostly because of the overt nature of the spamming and the and the bot farming and and, you know, all the other techniques, which are so reminiscent of the techniques that were used with Brexit and the American elections, right? Absolutely. So I think that people have just about had enough. And you know, once it the the thing about these guys is once you prove it in one country, you've pretty much proved it everywhere because they don't really use any different techniques. Right. You know, from country to country. It's all sort of the same thing. So I think that's another benefit that we could have if we could get a serious look at the DMCA safe harbors.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you. That was perfect. <laughs> That's <was> exactly <laughs> what I wanted to know. Okay. As usual, Chris Castle, you are always a joy. Thanks for being with me on The Future of What?
3: Great. Thanks a lot, fortune. Take care.
4: Like before and the rest of us never spoken, the paths never traveled, the rules never
0: That was Last Chance County by Filthy Friends. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's Potty Mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard songs by Filthy Friends, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash what. And sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.
1: Can I have a taste of your-